Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a breast surgeon provides an overview of breast cancer and what to know if you or someone you care about is diagnosed. The goal is to get a mammogram, and so whether it be a two-dimensional or three-dimensional, you know, either is fine. Two mental health professionals will talk about their work on suicide prevention. It used to be um, unheard of, really, to see suicide deaths um, at the age of 10 or, or under, um, but now it's happening with more frequency. And a scientist explains his research into how to improve the side effects of chemotherapy without diminishing cancer-fighting abilities. What we found was our small molecule turning off the SHIP-1 gene allowed mice to recover their platelets, the cells that prevent hemorrhages, but also protect their red blood cell compartment better. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about the alarming rise in the rate of suicide in America and suicide prevention efforts that are underway here in Central New York. Then we'll talk with a scientist who is working on improving the side effects of chemotherapy. But first, the Chief of Breast Surgery at Upstate discusses what you need to know about breast cancer. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Approximately one in eight women will be diagnosed with invasive breast cancer in their lifetime. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about this disease is Dr. Ranjana Sharma the Chief of Breast Surgery and Medical Director of the Breast Cancer Program at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Sharma. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Let's start by talking about the odds for the average woman being diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, sure. As you mentioned, uh, for the average woman in her lifetime, the risk is one in eight uh, will be diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, and for men, the risk is one in 800 to be diagnosed with breast cancer. So who is most likely to get breast cancer? Are there risk factors? Uh, certainly. So, you know, most times when we see breast cancer clinically, it's in patients who are in their late 50s uh, into their 60s and early 70s. But there are also women in their 30s and 40s getting breast cancer. And many times that's due to significant family history or potentially a genetic mutation. So family history, um, are we concerned only about other members of the family that have breast cancer or are there other cancers that we need to be aware of? So we're concerned about uh, more so first-degree relatives with breast cancer. So a mother, a sister, or a daughter with breast cancer uh, can increase your risk of developing it yourself. However, also other cancers in the family, such as ovarian cancer and pancreatic cancer, can be thought to run on uh, certain genetic um, uh, syndromes. And so if you had a family history with those types of cancers also involved, we would be more concerned from a genetic standpoint. Um, but just to mention that the genetic aspect of breast cancer only only uh, up to 10% of patients who have breast cancer have a genetic mutation, so it's not very common uh, in the general population. But for the specific you know, types of um, patients that we were just talking about, those are the cancers we would look at. So for the majority of women then that get breast cancer, there is no genetic Correct. Reason. It's considered sporadic, meaning you know there was um, something that just went wrong in the cells and thus a tumor developed, and many times that's related to the aging process. Is there anything, I mean, we can't change how we're aging, but is there anything we can do that reduces our risk? Yes, there are certainly modifiable lifestyle and dietary um, suggestions that we can offer. So from the standpoint of diet, we recommend a diet low in fat uh, to decrease the risk of breast cancer. From the standpoint of exercise, we recommend having um, adequate cardiovascular exercise three times a week, approximately 30 minutes or so of uh, cardiovascular exercise. Um, other things that we can talk about too are um, not to use um, tobacco products or other smoking-related uh, products. And then the last factor um, it involves use of alcohol. Uh, if a patient is not using alcohol at all, that's great. But for those that do, we recommend no more than three to five drinks per week. That's considered um, having alcohol in moderation. But more than that, you know, we would say may increase your risk for developing breast cancer. What do you recommend in terms of screening for breast cancer um, in mammograms? I know there's been talk in recent years about what age is appropriate to start your mammograms. 
In 2018, the American Cancer Society updated their screening recommendations. And so in terms of the recommendations currently, between the ages of 40 and 45, we recommend that women uh, talk with their clinicians and based on their personal history and their family history, determine when to start screening mammography. They would then have annual screening mammography uh, at least beginning by the age of 45 until the age of 55. Between the ages of 55 to 75, they could choose to have mammograms every year or every other year, again, based on personal history, family history, and a conversation with their clinician. After the age of 75, the thought is that women may continue having screening mammography as long as their life expectancy is at least 10 years. Okay. And so at that point, it's more of a, you know, an individualized or personalized conversation with their clinician. Now, there's different types of mammogram uh, availability. Does it matter which type you get? So you, there are um, an, there are newer types of mammograms um, that people refer to as a 3D mammogram, or the more technical term is um, a tomosynthesis-related uh, mammogram. And so they are thought to be better for assessing masses or asymmetries. But there are other abnormalities in the breast, such as calcifications, which either a two-dimensional or a three-dimensional mammogram will see just fine. So you know, I think that it depends on what is offered at the center that you go to uh, for mammography. If you have the opportunity to have a 3D mammogram and would like to try it, I, I don't think it's a, I think it's a good good idea to try that. However, you know, some patients are concerned because there's a little extra risk for radiation. And so from that standpoint, some women may prefer just a two-dimensional mammogram. Uh, the, the goal is to get a mammogram. And so whether it be a two-dimensional or three-dimensional, you know, either is fine. Now, I've heard the term um, that some women have dense breasts. Is there one type of mammogram that's better or worse for someone that has dense breasts? I would say that if someone does have dense breast tissue, a three-dimensional mammogram may be preferred, although a two-dimensional mammogram will still look at the tissue. The concern with dense breasts is that mammography, which is essentially x-rays, sometimes can't see through all of the tissue very well. So in those patients, uh, their clinician may recommend additional breast imaging in addition to their annual mammogram, uh, such as either a breast ultrasound or a breast MRI. So someone would still get a mammogram every year, but in addition, they may have an additional form of screening as well. Now, what about self-breast exams? Is that still a recommendation? So, you know, the, the thought is that a self-breast exam, um, you know, can vary, uh, from patient to patient, you know, who's performing it, what time of the month they're performing it. Um, also, um, you know, are they remembering to perform it every month? And the, you know, the data has shown us that there's no survival benefit uh, to doing a self-breast exam. The benefit for breast health is to go to your clinician once a year and have a clinical exam as well as your um, annual breast imaging as recommended. So for our patients, if they would like to perform self-breast exam, we certainly don't discourage it. We um, apply the concept of knowing oneself. So if you know you're someone that has, you know, um, more dense breast tissue or more lumpy per se breast tissue, and that's the same exam you're getting every month, then, you know, that's very stable for you. If you noticed a change from one month to the next, that would be something you'd want to bring to your clinician's attention. But quite honestly, if you're getting your annual examination, you know, within the next few months, likely that would be picked up anyway. So the thought is, even though it may not improve survival, it may allow you to identify something just a little bit sooner, which, you know, certainly isn't, is, is reasonable to do. So we never discourage patients from doing the exam, but at the same time, it's not in place of having a clinical exam or annual screening. Okay. And they would be feeling for lumps or bumps or anything that's unusual, I guess, right? Yes, correct. So you would want to check for any lumps or bumps, any new masses. Um, you know, what's important is, does the mass feel round and smooth? Is it moving freely or is it more irregular and fixed? Uh, we would want to know if there were skin changes, you know, is there skin retraction? If there's um, redness overlying an area of the breast that's persistent and won't go away over time. Other things that we look for are nipple retraction, nipple discharge, so these are the findings on clinical exam that would be helpful for your clinician to know. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Ranjana Sharma, the Chief of Breast Surgery and Medical Director of the Breast Cancer Program at Upstate. So let's talk about how breast cancer is diagnosed. Once a woman has an 
abnormal mammogram? Or, or Where do you go from there? Sure. So there are two main uh, ways that breast cancer is diagnosed. One is, as you said, uh, through abnormal screening mammography. The other is by either a, a patient or a clinician feeling an abnormal uh, mass on the breast or seeing abnormal uh, skin changes or nipple changes. So one would be through mammography, the other would be through a clinical examination. In either instance, once an abnormality is detected, the next step is to get what we call diagnostic imaging. So this may involve additional mammographic views and an ultrasound targeted to the area. We're basically looking to see if we can see something inside in the tissues that we can do a needle biopsy for to establish a diagnosis. Uh, then the next step would be uh, to have a needle biopsy performed. Uh, at Upstate, this is done in our radiology suite by our trained radiologists. Uh, they would take a sample of the tumor uh, for evaluation in our pathology lab. And once that evaluation was performed, we would know what the tissue uh, was. And if it was a breast cancer, move forward with maybe additional testing, maybe further imaging, and certainly a discussion about treatment options. Let me ask you how men typically learn they have breast cancer, because men, men don't get mammograms. Correct. Um, so how do they find out if they have breast cancer? In men, the diagnosis is usually made on clinical examination. Either the patient or their clinician will feel essentially a mass in the breast that then undergoes further workup. Uh, men can still have mammograms and ultrasounds, but as you mentioned, they don't have as much breast tissue. So the, it's, you know, it's, a, it's the same type of study, but there's just not as much tissue that's being looked at per se. Uh, but we would still offer the same imaging workup and then proceed with a biopsy uh, to establish a diagnosis. Okay, so once you have the biopsy sample, you'll know whether it's cancer or not, or what type of cancer it is, right? Yes. Um, does it does it matter the size of the tumor? Does that inform anything? Sure. the The size of the tumor would allow uh, your clinician to make recommendations regarding what treatment options may be available. Many times a patient will choose to have surgery first, and the size of the tumor may um, influence what type of surgical options may be available. Uh, but this, in this day and age, we also have the opportunity to consider trying to shrink a tumor down if it has certain features. And so some patients can have medical therapy first, either chemotherapy or endocrine therapy, which is a hormone-based pill therapy. And that will allow a tumor to shrink down and thus open up other surgical options that may have not been available initially. Once you um, have identified the tumor, how do you know whether the cancer has spread? We would uh, initially uh, uh, evaluate the remainder of the breast tissue. Sometimes that's done with additional imaging, uh, such as a breast MRI. Uh, but we also check the lymph nodes. We do look at the lymph nodes on imaging, but more importantly, we check the lymph nodes at the time of surgery. The procedure is called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. We're looking for uh, the first few lymph nodes that drain the breast, removing a few lymph nodes at the time of your breast surgery, and looking at them under the microscope to see if there's any cancer cells. So if it did spread, it would go through the lymph nodes to go? Very likely it would go to the lymph nodes first. If you have um, breast cancer in one breast, are you likely to get it in the other? Does it spread that way? In the absence of a known gene mutation, your risk for having a contralateral breast cancer or breast cancer in the other breast is, is rather low. Um, 0.5 to 1% per year or less than 10% over 10 years. So the risk is, is pretty low, although it does exist. So certainly you'd be monitored uh, if you have a personal history of breast cancer. You'd be monitored with mammograms and clinical exams. So in terms of options for treatment, you mentioned surgery and chemotherapy or hormone therapy. Um, radiation might come into play too, right? Yes. Um, so in terms of treatment options, uh, the, from a surgical standpoint, there are two main options to treat a breast tumor. One is mastectomy, which means removing the breast. And in this day and age, we have options to create new breasts with uh, plastic surgery colleagues. Uh, they can use either implants or tissue flaps to make a new breast for a patient. Um, the other option is what we call breast conservation therapy. This involves a lumpectomy, which is uh, removing the tumor plus a margin of healthy tissue around it, and then offering radiation for the remainder of the breast and chest wall. And so what we've uh, noted over over many years at looking at both approaches is that the survival for both approaches is the same from a surgical standpoint. So a patient is not going to live longer by choosing, you know, a more extensive surgical plan. So they may not, the difference of survival may not, not be different, but does the um, recurrence of cancer change depending on 
So the, the recurrence rates are slightly different between the two when one looks at the statistical uh, figures, but clinically the rates are less than 10% from a surgical standpoint for both approaches. So even though statistically there is a slightly higher risk for recurrence with breast conservation therapy with the lumpectomy and radiation, it's not enough that clinically it would be relevant. Uh, so we tell patients they can usually choose either. But of course, as mentioned, we have to look at the features of the tumor and the size of the tumor as well. Uh, are men with breast cancer treated the same way? Uh, they, they have the same options? Uh, yes, they can be. Um, you know, because men don't have as, most men don't have as much breast tissue as most women, their, um, their opportunities for breast surgery usually involve a recommendation for mastectomy. Although, you know, to be honest, there's not a reason you couldn't do a lumpectomy and radiation for a male patient as well. Uh, but we just have to make sure that we would be able to have a conversation with them about the, what the cosmetic result would look like afterwards and so that, you know, we could guide them appropriately in terms of making a decision. So once a person has been diagnosed and treated for breast cancer, what does life look like after they're successfully, I don't want to use the word cured, but they could, I mean, they could be cured, yes. right? Uh, well, but what happens what after? Yes, our goal is to get them back to their their baseline. They're back to their healthy, happy life. Uh, we want them, you know, after they've gone through treatments, to be able to resume the activities and you know the things that they like in their life. We do uh, watch you a little bit more closely, of course, once you've had a diagnosis of breast cancer. In our practice, we see our patients in six months, and if they have uh, breast tissue intact, we would offer um, that first mammogram in six months' time. We use diagnostic mammograms for the first five years uh, to get a better look at the breast tissue. Uh, particularly the area where they may have had a surgery such as the lumpectomy. And so we would follow you um, at six months and then every year thereafter in our clinic doing breast exams, doing your mammograms, any additional imaging that was needed. Um, in that period of time, you would be finishing up, as you mentioned, any radiation therapy, any medical therapy as well. And so we would keep a close eye on you, um, certainly for that period of time. And thereafter, many times we do continue to follow our patients depending on what their clinical situation is. But we certainly want and expect that you will get back to the life that that you want to be living. Well, thank you to Dr. Ranjana Sharma, the Chief of Breast Surgery and Medical Director of the Breast Cancer Program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on HealthLink on Air, what's being done to help reduce the risk of suicide? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. An alarming increase in the suicide rate in America has been, become apparent over the past two decades. And today I'll be talking with two people who are working on suicide prevention efforts. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studios is Dr. Sitha Ramanathan, a clinical instructor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate. And by telephone is Dr. Jay Carruthers, who is the Director of Suicide Prevention in the State Office of Mental Health in Albany. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Amber. So let's begin with the numbers. Um, is it true that New York State actually has the lowest suicide rate in the country, Dr. Carruthers? Uh, it is, yeah. So the most recent CDC data is from 2017, and so of all the 50 states, New York State is the lowest um, at 8.1 per 100,000. Okay. Now, but we've seen increases overall in the rate of suicide across the nation. Have we seen that in all age groups, or is there a particular category of person that we're most concerned with? Um, just about all age groups. This has been, so you're absolutely right, there has been a rise in the nation and in New York State. If you look at um, over the last uh, one to two decades, there's been a slow, steady increase. Um, and it's it just impacted just about every age group. Um, there are concerns about specific age groups um, sort of rising um, faster. Mm -hmm. um, historically, um, uh, for instance, um, males have a much higher rate of suicide than females, um, and you know just about um, three of out of, uh, three of four suicides uh, are male. Uh, there's been concerns that um, female rates are um, closing that gap, 
Um, another group that's been highlighted also is black youth. Uh, historically, again, black youth had, uh, uh, blacks in general have had lower uh, suicide rates than um, other racial ethnic groups. So, um, but um, the latest kind of epidemiology suggests that um, they have been rising at, at higher rates, but it has impacted just about every group. I read recently that suicide is now the second lead of leading cause of death among Americans from age 10 to 24. And that kind of surprised me that that young, age 10. Yeah, that, that certainly is a really disturbing trend in the epidemiology is that you're seeing, you know, it used to be um, unheard of, really, mm-hmm. to see suicide deaths um, at the age of 10 or, or under. Um, but now it's happening with more frequency. Um, and it's certainly one of the more troubling aspects of, uh, of the trend. Has there been research on the, the methods of suicide and how are people killing themselves? Um, absolutely. That's really a, um, uh, a focal point in a lot of the research is um, looking at methods. And um, when you look nationally, about 50% of all suicides are fire- firearm-related. Um, and But when you look at New York State, the rate is less than a third are firearm-related. And, and so nationally, firearms by far is the number one um, means that's used. Uh, involving suicides. And um, again, New York is less than a third. Actually, um, hanging is is more common in New York State. And this disparity, um, the fact that we don't have as many firearm-related um, suicide deaths is one of the factors that suggested uh, as to why New York would have a lower rate um, than other states. Interestingly, when you, when you look at, uh, particularly if you pull out New York City um, suicides and look just at the rest of the state, it starts to look a little bit more like the rest of the country. So about 40% of suicide deaths for the rest of the state are firearm-related. But um, absolutely, the means in which people die, I think often people, there's a lot of interest in why people reach that decision. Why would they do that? How did they reach that decision? But um, the, the emphasis on means is um, important for a couple reasons because um, the lethality. So um, you don't really get a second chance when you're using a firearm. Uh, you rarely get a second chance if, if you're hanging. Um, so, uh, so um, you know, many people may have a, a suicide attempt, but they're less likely to die if they, if they um, overdose on medications or even... Um, you know, superficial uh, cutting, uh, is, is, those methods tend to be far less lethal. Well, let's talk about what New York State is doing in terms of prevention, suicide prevention. What, uh, what efforts are underway? Um, so New York State has really been recognized as a leader in suicide prevention across the country. Um, and, and I think we, um, uh, you know, while it's true, um, even New York, over the last two decades, the rate has been rising. We've been um, relatively flat level since 2012, and um, I'd like to think it's because of all the activities that we're doing. We're certainly trying to um, implement impactful suicide prevention programming. So we, we're very active in the suicide prevention space, um, and the the main areas where we're focusing is um, first. Uh, I would say is the healthcare and behavioral healthcare kind of uh, space. Um, so I think it's important to uh, remember that even um, mental health services have not been explicitly designed to reduce suicide deaths. They've been designed to provide services for people with depression or schizophrenia or bipolar. So the work that's underway is often referred to as implementation of the zero suicide model. Um, and really, um, what that boils down to is working with health and behavioral health care systems to fundamentally integrate, um, systematically integrate suicide prevention into the care that they provide. So we're doing that um, across the state. We've got a couple grants that uh, help fund this activity to support health systems 
in making those changes. Um, and there's a, a, a quite a bit of activity right there in Onondaga County, particularly with the Syracuse providers. Um, well, I wanted to ask Dr. Romanathan, I know she's been um, involved in the attempted suicide short intervention program. Is, is that right? Can you tell right. us about that? Uh, ASIP is uh, a novel intervention for suicidality. Uh, it is delivered in three sessions. It's delivered over three sessions, followed by letters. It's actually a part of the Zero Suicide Grant. Um, we've been working in the program. We've been implementing the program for the last uh, uh, one and a half years now um, and have worked with around 50 patients right now, 50 individuals. <clears throat> Um, ASIP, is, uh, ASIP was developed in Switzerland and has one randomized control trial which um, showed um, an 80% reduction in reattempts in the ASIP arm as compared to the control arm. And there was a 72% reduction in hospitalization. So it's a pretty promising uh, program. So it, it seems effective in reducing repeated attempts. That is true. It is actually brief, effective, and very person-centered. The, the intervention is delivered in a very collaborative manner. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Seether Ramanathan, a clinical instructor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences here at Upstate. And by telephone is Dr. Jay Carruthers, who's the director of suicide prevention in the State Office of Mental Health in Albany, and we're talking about suicide prevention. I read that the New York State Health Foundation issued a report just uh, this month in January 2020 that showed veteran suicide rates are lower in New York State than the rest of the nation. Um, I wanted to ask why you think that is. If um, do we have programs that target veterans specifically? Um, we, I, I think, part of the we, we are working to target veterans, and you're absolutely right. Um, uh, veterans have a higher rate of suicide than the general population, but um, it's true that New York State has a lower rate than. Um, veteran suicide rates than the rest of the country. In fact, I think, again, we're um, uh, actually one other state, Hawaii, has a, a lower veteran suicide rate. So, And the re one of the reasons cited actually in, in the report that was put out by the Health Foundation that you referenced was um, that our veteran population is um, a little bit older um, than um, the average and so um, they may be more removed from military service. Um, and so that, um, it suggested that that in part plays a role. But even when you control for that factor, it seems New York State's um, rate is, is below the, the national average for veteran suicide rates. Um, so we are um, engaging, we're working with Department of Veteran Services. It, it, it turns out that um, uh, oftentimes, Veterans are eligible for veteran services, and they may not they may not be connected to those services. And one of the things that has been established is that those that are not connected to VA services have a higher rate than, than those veterans that are. So um, the first step is making sure that those who are eligible for services are connected connected to services. So what can you tell me about the suicide fatality review grant? Um, so that is. A grant that we have with the New York State Health Foundation. It's a really interesting project. Um, we've got four pilot counties that are participating. Um, Erie County, uh, Onondaga County, Westchester, and Suffolk. And we're working with um, medical examiner offices in, in all four of those counties. Um, and this work is really um, based on pioneering work that's been done um, in Oregon, um, in Washington County, Oregon. And really, there are two aspects to it. Um, what they found in Oregon, they did, they did two things that were really smart. Number one is that they, um, they collect um, really important information about um, the circumstances surrounding suicide death. Um, so their medical death investigators, when there's a suicide death, make sure they capture critical information um, around risk factors that led to the, the death. Um, and number two is they've assembled um, a group of community stakeholders to do in-depth um, fatality reviews. So the way it works is um, after someone dies by suicide, the medical examiner office would reach out to the legal next of kin and say, we've assembled this group um, that's 
um, trying to review deaths and prevent suicides in the future, um, would you be willing to allow members of that group to freely share information solely for the purpose of preventing suicides in the future? And so if the legal next of kin agrees to that, they conduct these in-depth reviews. And between catching the critical information at the medical death investigations and what they learned in these doing these fatality reviews, um, a few patterns emerged in Oregon. Um, one was that several people who die by suicide, one of the last things they do is drop, drop their pets off at animal shelters. Really? So the Oregon team um, trained up staff at the animal shelters, and they've already intervened several times and connected um, people that came in uh, with um, connected them to services. Another interesting finding uh, is that across different demographic groups, they couldn't figure it out, but um, several individuals were going to this one hotel in the county, and that's where they killed themselves. So again, they trained the front desk staff and housekeeping to recognize it, and they've intervened several times. The interesting part also is that other hotel owners started hearing about this, and they wanted the training. Uh, it, didn't, it wasn't a mandate. It just kind of word of mouth spread. Um, a final really interesting finding was that um, they, um, they identified in the medical death investigations, they noticed that eviction seemed to be, be a particularly powerful risk factor. Um, so several of the individuals that died had recently undergone eviction. And so they went to the county sheriff. They said, Sheriff, would you mind if, we, uh, if you passed out these flyers when you're serving legal eviction notices? And the sheriff said, I can do better than that. I'm going to send out a trained mental health counselor uh, with uh, law enforcement when we serve legal eviction notices. And they've virtually eliminated eviction uh, as a risk factor, uh, that, uh, which you don't hear in the suicide prevention field, that they eliminated risk factors. It, so the, the beauty of the model is that it's very powerful. Um, it, it's empowering communities um, to use data to identify the touch points in the system that can be leveraged for prevention. So if you have a dollar of prevention, it's really hard to know where best to spend it. But this, you know, what, what Onondaga County finds may be different from what Erie County finds and Westchester and Suffolk. So that's the exciting part about this, that it really empowers communities to use their own data and figure out the touch points across the system that have the best chance of being leveraged to prevent suicide deaths. Is this review underway in Onondaga County already? Um, it's, they haven't done reviews. We've, um, we've, we're just finalizing um, things like uh, agreements to, to share data with my office. Um, and, um, but Onondaga has assembled their team, um, their suicide fatality review team. And um, we already have, uh, I think, in March and April, they're, they're, they'll be conducting their first reviews. Well, thank you to clinical instructor Dr. Sitha Ramanathan and also New York State Suicide Prevention Director Dr. Jay Carruthers. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a scientist talks about improving the side effects of chemotherapy. University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some of the potent medications that are used to fight cancer are effective, but cause severe side effects for some patients. A scientist at Upstate is investigating how to make chemotherapy more tolerable, and he's here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to tell about his work. William Kerr is a professor of microbiology and immunology, biochemistry and molecular biology, as well as pediatrics. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Kerr. Hi, Amber. Thanks to be nice to be here. Now, much of your career has been spent studying the SHIP-1 enzyme. Can you tell us what this enzyme is? Yeah, without getting into too much nitty-gritty, it's basically uh, uh, an enzyme or a protein that sits inside the cell. And when the cell receives a signal from outside, like it binds to it's an immune cell, for instance, maybe binding a bacterium or a virus, there's receptors on the outside that tell the cell, this is out there, we need to be aware of this. 
and the ship gene, ship one gene, helps interpret the signals to either turn the cell off if it's the immune cells over responding or actually maybe help it survive and do a better job. So it helps integrate the signals coming from outside the cell into the interior of the cell to the nucleus where the DNA is and helping the cell. So it sort of helps the cell make decisions about I should do something or I should leave it alone. And, and but we found uh, initially, we and others found this gene was very important in immune cells, but then my lab spread out into studying its role in blood stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells in the bone marrow. And that's really the focus of this most recent grant was uh, findings we made, a, a, a PhD student in my lab, Robbie Brooks, who's actually been out of the lab now for four or five years. Um, Robbie made a, a, some, did some really impressive work showing molecules my lab discovered that he actually discovered uh, that could turn the SHIP1 gene off, helped hematopoietic stem cells, blood stem cells grow, increase their numbers inside the bone marrow. And it was almost stunning. We saw uh, about a five to six fold increase. That'd be a five to 600% increase in the number of blood forming stem cells in the, bone, in the adult bone marrow of a mouse when we treated them with this chemical compound that could turn the SHIP1 gene off. And that led to, and that was the basic science, if you will, the fundamental advances that led to this current grant. Because we, we, we also, as part of that publication, Robbie and another student, Sonia Iyer, who she's now gone on and left the lab. She's at MIT doing a postdoc. Robbie and Sonia teamed up to show, okay, along with this increase in blood-forming stem cells, we could get the, the, their ability to repopulate or, or replace the damaged blood cells after radiation. We could, allow, we could have that process happen faster with this molecule that turned off the SHIP1 gene. In other words, we could turn off SHIP1 and sort of take the brakes, if you will, off the hematopoietic stem cell so they could recover faster when the blood-forming system in the bone marrow, the stem cells that make the blood in the bone marrow were damaged by radiation. So if it works for radiation, we reasoned, hypothesized, if you will, that it would work for chemotherapy because chemotherapy and radiation are both essentially damaging the blood-forming stem cell capacity. And that's why chemotherapy patients have dangerous drops in blood cell numbers like neutrophils, platelets, red blood cells, and, wanna, so, and so do radiation patients, patients getting total body radiation. I want to ask you about chemotherapy, but I heard you call the SHIP1 a gene. Yes. Is it an enzyme or a gene? Yeah, so it's a gene that encodes an enzyme. So you know the flow of genetic information. There's DNA sitting in the nucleus on chromosomes. That encodes what's called a messenger RNA. That goes out in the cytoplasm of the cell, and, the, and that RNA then gets converted into protein. So the protein is does the work of the gene. The gene is just like software or coding or information. The, the protein is actually what does the work. Okay. And, and this gene, SHIP1, is in all of our cells? The DNA is in all of our cells, but it's not expressed or turned on at the RNA level. You have to transcribe that DNA into RNA to make the protein. And it's interesting that SHIP1, its expression is restricted to the blood and immune system cells. But also, interestingly, we found uh, mesenchymal stem cells, another kind of stem cell that makes cartilage, bone, and fat, also express this gene. And interestingly, when we turn off the SHIP1 gene, we not only increase blood-forming stem cells, numbers, but also mesenchymal stem cells, the cells that can make uh, bone, fat, and, and cartilage. Uh, I, I am a co-author on a paper that just came out this last month. Uh, another group went and found it's also expressed in epithelial cells. Skin. Uh, no, yes, uh, lung lining epithelial cells in this case. Oh. I don't know about the skin epithelial cells. That's possible. We haven't looked directly at those. But the, the group at Brown um, and... Uh, it, uh, we just published a paper together. I'm a, a co-author. I'm not the lead author on this paper. Uh, showed that fibrosis, uh, turning off the uh, mutations in the SHIP1 gene when there was damage done to the lung, I believe they used a, a, some kind of damaging agent for the lung, could cause fibrosis. So SHIP1 has a role also in lung uh, epithelial cells. 
a skin I don't know, but it's a possibility. Well, let's talk about how chemotherapy works. And sometimes it's paired with like a, a stem cell transplant. Mm. So if it's designed to, you know, kill the bad cancer cells, while it's doing that, it's it, it's also causing some side effects that are yes. problematic, right? Yes. So talk to me about what sorts of side effects the, the you're two, concerned with. Probably the two major ones are effects on the gastrointestinal tract because there you also have an adult stem cell population uh, epithelial cells in the gut lining, intestinal epithelial cells have a stem cell source. And, and it's actually the most prolific, most active stem cell source in the body. We're constantly replacing our epithelial lining because it's always being insulted by bacteria or viruses. You know, we're always getting exposed to things or possibly, you know, you eat something wrong, it damages you. And you always have to replace those with fresh epithelial cells. The same is true also the blood, blood forming. So those anemias, problems of blood, or gastrointestinal problems are usually the two major toxicities. But of course, you can also have impacts on the lungs, the liver, other other organ systems too. But I would say the blood and the gastrointestinal tract are probably, because of their, they're both re- reliant on a highly active, highly proliferating, rapidly growing stem cell population, that they are just like cancer cells, which are also rapidly growing, are affected by chemotherapy. There's just nothing you can do about that. So a person who's fighting cancer that's got GI problems, either with not being able to eat or having yes. diarrhea, constipation, whatever mm-hmm. is messing up their tract, or anemia, that yeah. would leave them fatigued because... Right, they would have not have enough red blood cells. They can't get oxygen to their tissues. They could not have enough... Uh, have a, what's called platelets. Platelets are the cells that plug up our vasculature. We get a leak in our veins and arteries. The platelets sort of seal that off so we don't hemorrhage. The uh, biggest problem actually is probably a loss of a type of white blood cell, innate immune cell called a neutrophil or granulocyte. These guys actively surveil the body and particularly for bacteria but also sometimes funguses and will fight off bad buggies without having to get our uh, more advanced, sophisticated immune cells like B cells and T cells that make antibodies involved. This is important because uh, bacteria are always invading our body or challenging our body, and we need something that responds to them rapidly because the B cells and the T-, T cells take almost 10 to 14 days to really get into action. And if, if we didn't have something to sort of fend off the bad guys in the beginning, we'd never live long enough to get the B and T cells involved. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with scientist William Kerr about chemotherapy and how to uh, reduce the side effects that might come with that. Mm. So what is your idea for reducing these side effects? If a person could have chemotherapy mm. and not have the GI tract discomfort so, and the anemia, right. and what would that do for I mean, it so seems what, like we're, we're going to help it, out or? with the blood cell problems. The compounds uh, that we've described at this point in time, I don't think would would help the in, in, in intestinal epithelial cells with the gut problems. But one of the major toxicities is susceptibility to op- opportunistic infections, uh, bacterial infections, uh, fungal infections, uh, strike cancer patients who are getting intensive multiple doses of really heavy chemotherapy to reduce their, their, their tumor burden. Uh, they are going to have immune problems and also blood cell problems. So what we're targeting is, is that problem. Uh, and that is a significant problem because, in fact, uh, there's a multi-billion dollar drug, or I mean, it's, now it's come off patent, called Nupagen. It's called granulocyte colony, colony stimulating factor. It's a little protein that stimulates the hematopoietic stem cells to make more of these immune-fighting neutrophils or that kill bacteria. But the problem with that um, billion-dollar drug uh, is it only helps with replacing the neutrophils. It doesn't do anything for the platelet recovery and the red blood cells. What we found was our small molecule turning off the SHIB1 gene allowed mice getting uh, radiation. Again, that's the first model we tested in to recover their platelets, the cells that prevent hemorrhages, neutrophils, the immune cell-fighting cells, but also uh, protect their red blood cell compartment better. So all the major problems 
for blood cell loss or damage from chemotherapy, red blood cell loss, neutrophil loss, or platelets, could be covered with one, in this case, one compound, or potentially, if it ever becomes it, a drug. And, and therefore, you wouldn't have to give somebody Neupogen. You give them one small molecule that would help the, the hematopoietic or blood stem cell make all three important cells that there are problems with in, in chemotherapy. So it would help their body do what yes. it's designed to do anyway. Yeah. But Yeah, and that might even help patients, uh, all of them. And, you know, if you, you're fighting off an infection, it's going to cause other uh, subsequent problems, even for the GI tract, because a lot of that's where a lot of infections come in through consumed food. Uh, our, our gastrointestinal tract, there's little sort of small war going on all the time, especially in the lower part of the small intestine. There's a lot of immune tissue there in the small intestine where the immune system is constantly surveilling what's come into our body. What did we just eat? You just had that plate of raw oysters uh, before you had dinner, and now there's something in there, and we have to deal with that. And But, you know, that's – we so improving the immune control there could, in effect, take some of the stress off the other aspects of the gastrointestinal. The, maybe there would be less damage to the intestinal epithelial cell, stem cells wouldn't have to do as much replenishment. So there could be knock-on benefits of improving immune function. Not even for people with cancer, but with other diseases that are not cancer. Possibly. It's possibly. There are some immune deficiencies that might potentially be helped. Uh, it depends on, it's, it's really context dependent. Well, um, talk to me, if you will, about the time frame for this. If this, if, if what you're doing in your lab proves beneficial and it works and mm. it's you know beyond your wildest expectations how long before patients would have something that they could take well let me just step back for a moment and point out that um i i founded a company called alterna therapeutics so i should have declared this in the beginning you know the conflict of interest so i'm chief scientific officer of this company so this grant that we received to test this idea in chemotherapy in mice and this can, is a national institutes of health grant yes it's a uh, I think it's called an STTR, and that's an acronym, uh, Small Business Technology Research Grant, something like that. Um, and it's to help, uh, the, the NIH gives small startup companies, like my company is, uh, small seed or pilot grants to get going with an idea. And so we have a phase one STTR grant, which is to do the initial proof of principle in chemotherapy. We've shown this works in a radiation, total body radiation, but they don't really use total body radiation much anymore to treat cancer. They used to do that decades ago, but now they they use uh, chemotherapy still. And so we're going to test this. And if it works in the mice, then we would write a phase two grant, uh, which would be for multiple years and actually quite a bit more money than this phase one grant, and and then maybe take it to a larger animal model, all on the in the process or the path towards filing an application for drug approval with the FDA. And that, so we're really looking at, uh, you know, I'm really not the best person on these time estimates, but because I always think things are going to go faster than they are. And this is typical for scientists, but then the reality with clinical and business people, three to five years, you know, everybody always says five years, but so I'm going to say three years and I'm probably going to be wrong by a year or two. And it also, also depends on success. If it worked in the radiation model, helping a radiated mouse recover their blood cell components, the small molecule turned off the ship one day, I suspect it will work for chemotherapy because they basically damage the same cell in the body. And so helping that hematopoietic stem cell would probably work for both. But they're, you know, it's not always like you draw it up on the board, right? So. Well, we'll have to have you back for some updates as this goes along. Thank you so much to scientist Dr. William Kerr. He's professor of microbiology and immunology, biochemistry and molecular biology, as well as pediatrics here at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. 
Judith H. Montgomery recently published a narrative medicine chapbook called Mercy. In her poem, My Father the Mathematician Has Fallen, she gives us an unflinching look at the aftermath of a fall. My father the mathematician has fallen again. The ER's white pillow bleeds fractals beneath his head. Pinned under squares of sterile light, he shouts, DNR, DNR, from the gurney to an audience of zero in his curtained cubicle. Breath clots in my throat as they let me enter. I can hardly speak my name. When he understands who is with him, he tells me what has happened as though it were a story problem he has solved, despite the sharp flash of pain and light as he fell full body backward to the tiled geometry of the kitchen floor. How he remembered to press the lifeline on his wrist, how the aides called the number 911. But he frets about the ambulance, the required gurney, the bother to the EMTs, not to mention adding up the costs in his frugal head. He seems not to be aware that his split scalp still weeps blood, does not yet know that this fall has jarred something loose inside, concussion that in three months' time will rob his tongue of every word and number, his equation-solving mind of answers to what he knows must be simple problems. For now, he's intent on reminding anyone in the room not to bring him back if his heart stops, which it has not, not yet, even as the reddened pillow signals some essential loss. I won't remind him later of what I hear pouring from his lips. Do not resuscitate. Words asserting who is in charge, who will not be a burden. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, male infertility, how head injuries are treated, and what you should know about CBD. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. <music>